Right, hi everyone. Welcome to Franken Reads at Macquarie. So before we start today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Macquarie University land, the Watamatagal clan of the Darug Nation, whose cultures and customs have nurtured and continue to nurture this land since the dream time. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. So 200 years ago, a group of the most exciting, the most scandalous, the most radical writers of the early 19th century gathered on a dark and stormy night in a year without a summer. Captured by the mood, they challenged each other, as you do, to write a ghost story. I think that we can probably agree that it was the young Mary Godwin, daughter of two of the most radical political philosophers of the 18th century, who won. 200 years on, Frankenstein still fascinates us, and this year, 2018, um, celebrations are happening all over the world to mark the 200th anniversary of this publication. So this event is forming part of the international celebration known as Frankenreads even though we're not reading the book. Um, so it's no strange stretch to say that Frankenstein remains one of the most recognisable, one of the most well-known novels of all time. I think most people, if they've never even read the book, they will know of Frankenstein. So today we, go, we have a wonderful and eclectic mix of papers celebrating all aspects of Frankenstein, from the novel itself in our morning session um, through to a variety of works that it has inspired. I'd like to extend my thanks to Professor Antonina Harbis, Head of the Department of English here at Macquarie, for her generous support of this event. Just a few housekeeping notes. Bathrooms are to the right of the lifts, if you're standing facing the lifts. They're sort of at the back. Um, we also have morning tea, lunch and afternoon tea being served just outside, just outside near the lifts. Um, if you want to tweet this event, um, we're going to use the hashtag FrankenReads. Please somebody tweet the event besides me. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Dr. Kirsten Mills, who will be chairing the first panel for us. Thank you, Kirsten. Okay, hello. Our first panel is on revisiting Frankenstein. Um, I would like to welcome our very first speaker, Dr. Lee O'Brien, who lectures in our department here. Uh, she teaches 19th century studies, um, which is also the subject that forms the bulk of her research. Um, she studies particularly the poetry of Emily Bronte. Uh, she's working on a project with Steph on the novels of the 1790s and 1890s, and she loves and teaches Frankenstein, so she's hoping to do justice to it here today. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here, and thank you, Stephanie and Antonina, for allowing all, all this to happen and to do honour to this extraordinary novel. And so I'm talking about the frame narrative, um, my beloved sister, the, the letters that Robert Walton writes to his sister. The extent to which um, Frankenstein puts on trial the nature of community bonds and the constitution of the patriarchal family on which community rests is well known. The monstrous version of the child, um, the would-be lover of the would-be lover and husband, the murderous violence that displaces stable, loving, familial affection, the distortion and, and death of love. All these things are part of the fabric of Frankenstein and part of the critical assessment of what the novel means. But there is, um, as narrative frame, a different version of the familial located in the series of letters between a brother and a sister, Robert Walton and Margaret Walton Saville. So what I'm trying to do in this paper is just 
really ask some questions about that frame narrative and explore some of those questions um, uh, that the letters in particular raise. If you were ask people, uh, to ask people who haven't read the novel to come up with ways that Frankenstein might begin, I don't think anyone would suggest a series of letters from a brother to his sisters about his quest to find a way to get to the North Pole, North Pacific Ocean, through the frozen seas surrounding the North Pole. So um, we begin with two characters who are outside the main story, as we are, of course, as readers, outside the story. It's a strategy that acknowledges distance, but that also acknowledges the paradox that absent readers have a measure of control over narratives. The frame narrative of Frankenstein, or what has been called the outermost tale of Frankenstein, invokes very explicitly the importance of interlocutors, um, people who read, people who listen, people who potentially and actually respond to what is said or written. And that, at its heart, is a social process. Even though Walton is, all, uh, is always present as he listens to Frankenstein and later writes his story, writes his words down, and the version, the written version of which is overseen, by, edited by Frankenstein himself, he's an editor as well as a scientist, Margaret uh, Walton Saville is an absent, uh, even spectral presence in her brother's mind. Mary Shelley thus frames her main story with an emphasis on the primacy of a female reader. Thus a figure who, given the gender realities of the time, will be an observer, um, never the main instigator and actor in the endeavours the novel chronicles. An extraordinary tale of um, unlawfully creating life, of unhallowed dabbling in black archaic arts at a university, what's more, of paradise lost, um, of betrayals, of cowardice and murders, begins by raising in a very personal and loving form the complex ways in which stories have origins, but also the ways in which they live through being heard it's clear that Robert Walton cares very deeply about his sister's feelings and judgments about the task he set himself to do. His anxiety about what she will think of him colors his opening address to her. I think it's the first thing we encounter in the novel. He's, he writes, you will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence of the success of my undertaking. But before I offer some thoughts on what the outermost tale uh, does to situate the broader concerns of the novel that the novel has, with tensions between good and bad forms of knowledge, um, between what the individual desires and what the community can withstand, um, between poetry and science. I'd like briefly to follow the relationship between story and audience into the possibly even more vexed territory of the relationship between story and author. This conference is being held now, as Stephanie has told you, to celebrate the publication of the novel 200 years ago. 
the reception history of the novel and, and, the, and the actual structure of this conference, I think, raises questions of the ways in which books move away from their authors. It's clear that the movement has been more extreme with Frankenstein than with most novels, I think. Like Dracula, uh, the monster's afterlife is so vivid that its origin has become obscured. I don't think my experience is unusual in that I came to the film via Hollywood and Boris Karloff and the 1931 film. I didn't have the faintest idea back then as I watched the film on the midday movies in, on school holidays or on the screenings for undergraduate students of what had become in the mid to late 20th century a cult film that it was not some fevered dream of James Whale and Universal Pictures, um, especially the makeup department. The film was largely viewed as comedy, at least by the audiences um, I was part of. Uh, undergraduates tended to be rather um, irreverent back then, <laughs> sorry to tell you. Um, and it has, of course, large doses of sentimentality that is strikingly absent, I think, from the novel, but very much a part of Hollywood, old Hollywood. Boris Karloff's performance is a subtle one that has suffered its own misappropriations. What gets emphasised is the film itself disappears into the interstices of black and white cinematic history, the shambling, robotic and bolts in the neck aspects, indicating a more mechanical version of the creature. When what, it, what is most troubling about Mary Shelley's demon is that he is flesh and blood, um, he's human and he has a mind and he has an intelligence. He's organic, not mechanic, uh, despite Frankenstein's attempt to deny him the status of the human. He calls him that filthy mass that moved and talked, but he also acknowledges he's a creature of fine sensations, tragically for the creature. And in a parallel with the preoccupations of the frame narrative, the monster creates himself um, as intelligent, sentient being, partly through reading, the reading he does. He is perforce an autodidact, um, capable after the reading program he sets himself of making intelligent, informed choices, violent though they are. And I think when the monster is clearly human, more than monstrous, he must fit as human within human social structures and political paradigms or be destroyed. And I think that's so much what the novel is about. Google tells me that the story of the film is by Mary Shelley, John L. Balderstone, Peggy Webling, Richard Shire. And the screenplay is by Garrett Fort, Francis Edward Farrago, Richard Shire and John Russell. I'm delighted that all those people get the billing, but really it hardly seems fair that Mary Shelley um, is sort of um, immured in the Hollywood process. Her authorship gets sidelined, watered down. In important ways, this separation of the very young 18-year-old she was when she wrote this novel, the 18-year-old Mary Shelley, from what she calls in her 1831 preface to the novel her hideous progeny, has a very long history. It goes back to Percy Shelley's unsigned preface to the 1818 edition, written in the first person um, and giving an account of the genesis of the novel. 
I have not considered myself, he writes, as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors, reminding us, of course, that Frankenstein is a Gothic novel. There's no author's name on the title page to the first edition. That's not unusual at this time, but given the subsequent history, I think it's interesting. Even though Mary Shelley's authorship was known from 1823, as recently as 2007, a monograph of the novel insists about the novel, uh, insists that it was written by Percy Shelley, not by Mary. The reception um, of the novel is rather like a parody of the novel itself, where creature and maker are separated, they're divided for most of the story. Creation, um, separation, confession of authorship are significant structural devices. Possibly the most haunting scenes of the novel are the pursuit of Frankenstein by the creature or the creature by Frankenstein. How do you get away from yourself? Susan Stewart in Crimes of Writing in the context of a discussion of G.J. Ballard's Crash, which is described as the first pornographic novel based on technology, writes of Victor Frankenstein's experiment in galvanism in which a birth awakens a death and intentions and effect are continually in flight from each other. The murderous merging of author and creation marking each contingency of plot. It's a fascinating reading of the novel, I think, and, but it's very obvious when you read the novel that, that it's the conflict in, between the creator and the created that, is, that the whole thing hinges on, the murderous conflict. The at least metaphorically murderous separation of author and creation, Mary Shelley and her novel, are more noticeable in, in the real world, in the accidents and deliberate omissions of literary history. It was a particular loss that linked to a woman <laughs> in that it reflected the general lack of recognition of the contribution of women to English romanticism, something that Frankenstein is so clearly a part of, and I wish it had always been taught as such. Uh, but it wasn't. Um, the great Mary Shelley scholar, Charles Robinson, who did so much to make the textual history of the novel available to scholars, published in 2008 what is the definitive, what is the definitive account of the various incarnations of the story, published by the Bodleian Press, an amazing thing. And if you love Frankenstein, you've got to get a hold of, hold of it. Once again, in, in this history of the, the textual history, absence threatens to overwhelm presence. The manuscript history of Frankenstein has been marked by gaps. All the early drafts of the novel are lost. The particularly egregious loss is that, um, the transcript that Mary Shelley wrote of her waking dream that was a germ of Frankenstein. That doesn't survive. This omission is perhaps made good in Mary Shelley's author's introduction. This time it really is Mary Shelley writing uh, to the 1831 edition where she describes the pale student of unhallowed arts, hoping that the thing he has brought to life will die and ending with a thrilling sentence. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside opening his curtains and staring at him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. I love that word speculative. She factors in the intelligence in the monster right from her earliest dreaming of the novel. 
The saddest loss in terms of manuscript is of Walton's initial four letters to his sister at the beginning and at the beginnings of the journal that actually morphs into Frankenstein's own story. And there's a paper in that alone, the way Walton's voice just sort of segues in, into Frankenstein's voice. It, and it's all Walton's voice when you, when you think about it. All the evidence we have is that these sections and the story as a whole are entirely of Mary Shelley's invention. She records in her 1831 author's introduction that I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident nor scarcely of one train of feeling to my husband. She had to keep saying that because people kept saying she was a young woman, she couldn't have written this. Robinson, actually Charles Robinson, estimates that of the 72,000 words of the novel, between four and 5,000 are by Percy Shelley. His interventions are really fascinating. Um, and again, that's not what the paper is about. But Robinson actually makes available a version with um, Percy Shelley's editions printed in italic font. So they're interpolated into Mary Shelley's writing. And he accompanies that where one where all the editions are deleted so that we can now actually read what Mary Shelley initially wrote. We've never been able to do that before, before 2008. What is really fascinating about this is that what Shelley adds is this very high um, impact romanticized language. Um, Mary Shelley is much more direct and when you just read her words there's this odd sense of modernity about the novel because she's so direct. Um, the, the, it, it's a different experience of reading. Uh, and I hope you can do it. <laughs> but for my purposes, um, Robinson identifies two significant aspects of the outermost tale. One is that Mary Shelley places herself in the margins of her novel, as Robinson puts it, through her initials, Margaret Walton Saville, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. He also points out that the dates given for the period of Walton's letters um, that the dates that they, they cover comes to 276 days or a nine month gestation period. Now, I really don't have any idea. I was really surprised to read that. And I have no idea whether such things are a coincidence or if there were an almost private notation to herself by Mary of the two quite conflicting ways in which women matter their function as writers, as creators of fictions, and their reproductive function. Two things that at the time Mary was writing, and of course way beyond that, that were often set in opposition to one another. Women were not encouraged to be intellectual, they were not encouraged to write. One of the primary arguments against it is that it would interfere with their ability to reproduce. If Robinson is right, there is a good deal being coded in the outermost tale, particularly about birth and about questions of authority as they relate to authorship, who listens to whom. There's so much going on in Frankenstein and the story is so richly culturally symbolic and the trope of birth itself is so easily moved into metaphoric terrain it's sometimes easy to miss that at one level, it's about the horrors of sexual reproduction at a time when sexuality meant reproduction and reproduction frequently meant death for women.
No other woman of the period comes even remotely close to mobilizing such horrific and insistently somatic images of a fundamental and inescapable human process, one that women back then were not supposed to think much about, let alone write about. Reproduction, as Mary Shelley regenders and reimagines it, is represented in the novel as something essentially monstrous. That makes the novel, to my mind, unique. A more common reading of the novel is that reproduction is foul when a natural process is usurped by an unnatural scientific technological one, male hubris in other words. Um, but a more challenging reading, I think, uses the idea of birth to raise the kinds of unsettling questions about the imagination that were increasingly apparent um, as the 19th century progressed, and that of course were part of the foundational discourse of Romanticism, the problems of the imagination. In Frankenstein, the natural is unnatural, birth is death. I'd argue that this transposition is there to make the reader speculate on the nature of creation, not only biological creation, but literary creation, the purpose and function of the imagination. It's easy to see how Frankenstein puts science on trial, but equally, and perhaps even more powerfully, it puts the ethical status of the imagination at issue as well. By asking very hard questions, I think, about the effect of imaginative endeavor on the real world. Does the imagination, for example, create delight, delightful visions or frightful monsters? And does the imagination have the capacity to deform the world? Walton's understanding that he writes about in his letters, his understanding of what he's doing, is a combination of the imaginative and the pragmatic. His initial statements is some of the most beautiful language in the novel, I think, but the novel is full of extraordinary, sublime language. His initial statements are ecstatic, I think, and, and this is to his sister, Margaret. I'm already far north of London, and as I walk in the streets of St. Petersburg, I feel a cold northern, bree northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? Inspired by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight, what may not be expected in a country of eternal light. It's only later in this first letter that Walton starts talking about the practical, uh, scientific and trade considerations of, of such a journey, finding a way to get to the North Pacific Ocean through the polar seas and ascertaining the secret of the magnet. It's only almost as an afterthought that these more practical considerations overwhelm the imaginative ones. Science, art, technology, poetry, particularly the poetry of Romanticism, are not really separate modes as Mary Shelley presents them in Frankenstein. As an observer, she saw the connections between them and framed those connections in both the structure and content of the novel as partly having to do with the problem of knowledge itself.
And that's something that's characteristic of 19th century discourse, imaginative scientific discourse, culminating, I suppose, with Charles Darwin. Um, the problems that knowledge creates. It's not seen as something that solves things anymore. So I wanted to end with some observations on Frankenstein and forms of knowledge. The contamination of the natural world by economic considerations and industrial processes was just beginning in the 19th century when Frankenstein was being written. Large sections of the novel are set in pristine wilderness, um, mountains, rocks, glaciers, lakes, that have the potential, at least, to nurture and nourish the human spirit because they are separate and distinct from the human. What Frankenstein reflects is the beginning of a way of humans interacting with the natural world that ensures its destruction. That's recorded obliquely in the novel by a very powerful mechanism, the frightening reality that wherever Victor Frankenstein goes, he is shadowed by his unnatural offspring, the product of science, the product of a weird kind of proto-technology. This is the problem that Mary Shelley is constantly worrying at in Frankenstein the human cost of knowledge, but also the human cost of the imagination. The capacity that human beings have that no other animal has to look at the world and imagine it as entirely other than nature would ever allow it to become. So, um, I hope that's given you some account. I know I've moved a bit away from the frame narrative, but it's just that the frame narrative raises so many issues that are then taken up and sort of embroidered and endlessly recast in the novel itself. But I just wanted to end with the modern times. Um, I've been reading Washington Post a lot lately, partly because you know there's another monster abroad that I'm, I'm reading a lot about. And um, I, I found this, this little item on the 8th of September this year. Under partly sunny skies and relatively balmy temperatures in the low 50s, the Ventimesque sailed through the Bering Strait this week and steered hard to port, beginning a modern day voyage of discovery that could herald a transformation for global shipping and the Arctic environment. The Venta is a big, new, pricey, ice-class vessel owned by Danish shipping giant Maersk, and it is the world's first container ship to attempt the Northern Sea Route, the fabled Northeast Passage that runs from the edge of Alaska to the top of Scandinavia along Russia's desolate Siberian coastline. I'm so glad they waited until this year to do that to the um, publication, and, and I, I wish the ship was called the Robert Walton, but it's not. And of course, the Ventimers can only do that sailing because of global warming and the, um, um, the, the melting of the polar seas in summer. So the Ventimers is not account encountering the ice that, that defeats Robert Walton because of the um, because we're downstream of the kinds of knowledge that um, made industrialization, made global warming, and the kinds of knowledge that are, I think we all can see, um, a, a mode of giving us problems. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lee, that was wonderful. It always amazes me that 
people seem to be able to accept that Mozart could compose a symphony at eight years old, but Mary Shelley couldn't have possibly written Frankenstein at 18. <laughs> um, our next speaker is Libby King. She is due to start a PhD here at the end of the year. We're looking forward to having her. Uh, her research looks at critiques of anthropocentrism in early 19th century women's literature. And she's speaking here today on a paper entitled Using the Living Animal to Reanimate Lifeless Clay, the Role of Vivisection in the Creation of Frankenstein's Monster. Hi, everyone. I'll just, uh, I'm using a PowerPoint. Hopefully it works out for me. Um, thank you. Okay. So the creature at the heart of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as we all know, is composed of um, deceased human beings, brought back to life in some mysterious way. Less well-remembered is a secondary component of Victor Frankenstein's creation, the use of live animals in the reanimation of human life. Sorry, I did change the title slightly. I wanted to make it shorter. Um, so who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? That's Victor reflecting on his scientific process. And it is the animal components of Victor Frankenstein's creation that I want to remember in this paper today and the practice of vivisection that brought them together. So vivisection is basically the dissection of live animals, uh, but the term can also be used to refer to any kind of experimentation on, on, on animals that are still living. Um, a feature of both medical and scientific practice since antiquity, uh, it became more controversial throughout the 19th century, and by the end of the 19th century, there was a large anti-vivisection movement. Um, and this was a movement that was, that was made up large, there was a large component of women in this movement and there are a lot of links between the anti-vivisection and the uh, suffragette movements. So I'll just, here's a couple of pictures um, of some anti-vivisectionists. So these are slightly later, but, but it was a growing movement from about um, 1870. Uh, okay. So when Shelley was writing Frankenstein at the beginning of the 19th century, critique of vivisection was not particularly common. Um, there was a growing concern for animal welfare, but generally people's concerns were focused on working animals and animals in sport. Um, so Anita Guarini has examined Frankenstein in the context of debates about vivisection and animal experimentation in the 1820s. So she notes that her aim is not to trace direct uh, influences on Mary Shelley's composition of the 1818 edition, um, but to situate it contextually in the climate that it would have been read in in the years following its release. Um, and she notes the visit of French physiologist Francois Magendi to England in 1824 and his public demonstration of vivisection as a key moment in the development of an anti-vivisection consciousness that, that deepens in subsequent years. So she suggests that by the time Shelley comes to um, publish the revised edition of Frankenstein in 1831, there's much more debate around um, the morality of vivisection than there is in the, the 1818 uh, edition. Um, but what I'm interested in examining is how Shelley's original text bears witness to the multiple ways that animals are used in human society, um, in which vivisection and animal experimentation are only some of the many examples of how non-human animals are used by human beings. Um, I'm not suggesting an overt criticism of the practice of vivisection is clear in Frankenstein, but I do think that the novel draws attention to the overwhelming use of non-human animals in human society. 
Um, so although the, all the references I'm going to be making today do come from the 1818 edition, I just want to draw um, all of your attention to the first copy of Frankenstein that I ever read, uh, which is an 1831 edition published by Penguin in 1992, and this rather famous painting that they used on the cover. Um, so this is an experiment on a bird in the air pump by Joseph Wright of Derby in 1768. And there's a full reproduction for everyone. If anyone was at uh, Sharon Rustin's uh, seminar early, this was the, the image that um, was on the PowerPoint that, that didn't work. So I bring it to you now. Um, so obviously what's happening in this picture is a bird is being deprived of oxygen by a vacuum pump. So that glass container, it's having the air sucked out of it. Um, and this was one of a number of experiments designed by Robert Boyle um, that were used to explore the properties of air, and in this case proving living creatures' reliance on air for survival. I mean, this experiment was actually popularly performed for live audiences throughout the late 18th century. And at one stage in Frankenstein, um, when Victor is describing his kind of early enthusiastic pursuit of science, he notes, my utmost wonder was engaged by some experiments on an air pump. And Catherine Harkup has recently suggested that this experiment is likely to be an oxygen deprivation experiment, similar to the one that we see here. In which case, I think it's noteworthy that Frankenstein doesn't mention that there's an animal that's used in this experiment. He doesn't uh, refer to any kind of sense of ambiguity about um, seeing this kind of experiment and its impact on an animal. He's more just interested in his scientific excitement at this experience. Um, yet in Wright's painting, I think an ambiguous range of responses is clear, and in particular, uh, these two young women that the light is directed at, they're clearly experiencing some discomfort and uncertainty about, about the experience of the bird here. So clearly, as, at least as early as 1768, there was some uh, concern and, and discomfort with uh, animal experimentation, um, in, even if it was associated with young, sensitive young women. Um, so much later in the century, as I mentioned earlier, we, we come to associate the anti-vivisection movement with women. Um, but earlier in the century, uh, the, the, yeah, earlier in the 19th century, even though there is a growing concern with animal welfare, it's not typically associated with women. Overt texts on animal welfare from the period are written by men. And I, I think it's worth noting that these kind of official concerns with animal welfare from earlier in the period are associated with social institutions that women didn't have access to. So happening at the level of parliamentary debate about proposed laws, um, about, yeah, proposed laws prohibiting and policing cruelty towards animals, yeah, happening at the level of parliament, so where women weren't allowed um, to take part in these in these kind of debates, and at the same time, writings on animal welfare were generally produced by prominent male figures in positions of power, such as clergymen, using uh, religious arguments. Um, so I'm interested in drawing links between here and here. I'm looking for, I'm interested in how at the end of the century we associate these animal welfare movements with women, and I'm trying to look for signs of this earlier in the century, tracing back this kind of consciousness of animal experience. Um, and I think that a clue lies in women's fiction from the period. Um, 19th century uh, women's fictional texts such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I'm interested in exploring both how women's fictional writing from earlier in the period gives voice to a concern for animal experience, but also the ways in which that concern 
is expressed differently to how it's being expressed in official uh, tracts on animal welfare from the time. And I think it is possible to see in these fictional writings a more uh, thoughtful and creative insight into animal experience that allows for a nuanced reflection on the position of non-human animals in human society. Um, so before turning to Shelley's novel, I want to look at one example of official writing on animal welfare from the period, just to give a sense of the kind of comparison I'm going to be making. So this is The Duty of Mercy and the Sin of Cruelty to Brute Animals uh, by Humphrey Primmett, who was a clergyman practicing in Suffolk, and this was uh, published in 1776. So this work is a religious argument. It uses a combination of religious discourse and reasoning uh, aiming to convince its readers to behave in a certain way and urging them of the necessity of kindness to animals. And Primit's basic argument is that all animals were created by God and are therefore part of a greater purpose of creation. An animal, whatever it be, or wherever it is so placed in the great scale of being, is such and is so placed by the great creator and father of the universe. At the top of the scale of the terrestrial animals, we suppose man. Yet in one particular, we all agree alike, from the most perfect to the most dull and deformed of men, and from him down to the vilest brute, that we are all susceptible and sensible of the misery of pain. So this understanding that all beings are capable of pain, whatever our place in the chain of being, is central to Primit's argument that humans should not unjustifiably cause pain to other creatures. And this is before Bentham's famous comment, can they suffer? So, so this idea about the experience of pain being common to animals it dates back to earlier than Bentham. Um, but what is really interesting here, as well as this understanding of pain, is this reliance on the understanding of, um, of humans at the top of the scale. And this idea that humans are superior to all other animals is also central to Primit's argument, in that he's arguing that it is befitting to our noble nature to treat lesser beings with kindness. And elsewhere he notes, if thou art a man, be thankful and show thy superiority by mercy and compassion, else thou debasest thy reason. So I think we can see uh, this reliance or this awareness of humans as superior beings is clear even in the title of the text. As superior beings, we have a duty of mercy to the brute animals. And quite early in the text, Primit explains what he means by brute animals as a general term for every creature inferior to man, whether beast or bird or fish or worm. And it's this phrase inferior to man that is interesting for my purposes today because obviously in other contexts at the time, inferior to man meant woman. And I'm interested in how some of the fictional work of women in their imaginative engagement with the experience of animals can complicate this understanding of the superiority of humans over other beings and in a generally hierarchical structuring of living creatures. So today I'll be spending the rest of this paper looking at how Frankenstein's creature can be seen to act as a mouthpiece exploring the experience of non-human animals in human society and their uh, position of being treated as inferior. So while the creature is unable to reflect on the processes of vivisection that took place before he was awakened by Victor Frankenstein, he is able to reflect on other experiences of being a non-human animal in human society, including a first-hand account of being hunted and shot. 
Um, so although he's not actually actively hunted in the, in the book for sport, there are numerous instances when he's chased by groups of people who, who fear him and aim to kill him. Um, and he describes in chilling detail the experience of being shot. Um, so this occurs when the creature is looking for Victor Frankenstein. He's journeying through the woods and at one point he sees a woman fall into a river and nearly drown and he rescues her. But when he rescues her, I'm sure everyone's aware of this part of the story, um, she and her, her mate run from him and the man eventually turns around and shoots him. And this is his response. This was then the reward of my benevolence. I had saved a human being from destruction, and as recompense, I now writhed under the miserable pain of a wound, which shattered the flesh and bone. And I think it's really interesting here that the monster moves from, um, first of all, an experience of emotional outrage at the fact that this has happened, to a much more physical description of what, how he's actually experiencing it in his body. Um, and the text goes on and describes the uh, the ensuing pain over a number of days. So he notes, for some weeks I led a miserable life in the woods, endeavouring to cure the wound which I had received. The ball had entered my shoulder and I knew not whether it had remained there or passed through. At any rate, I had no means of extracting it. And I think the fact that the text stays with this wound and how it heals over a number of weeks indicates a real interest in the experience of an animal physically trying to work out what's happened to it when it has been shot. Um, and as a result of this interaction, as well as various other negative encounters uh, with frightened humans, the creature develops an understand understanding of how dispensable his life is considered by human beings. He realises that most people would kill him without a second thought, if it was physically possible, and he begins to recognise the implications of what this means for what his life is worth compared to the value of human life. He comes to understand that his life has not been granted the sacredness that humans considered their own life to have. And this growing awareness is particularly clear when he finally does find Victor and confronts him in the valley of Shamuni. So this is the monster speaking to Victor. You, my creator, would tear me to pieces and triumph. Remember that and tell me why I should pity man more than he pities me. You would not call it murder if you could precipitate me into one of those ice rifts and destroy my frame. And the creature's reference to the fact that his own death at the hands of a human would not be called murder demonstrates a clear recognition of how the status of his own life is different to that of human life. It does not have the same value placed on it. And I think this injunction, remember that, is directed at the reader as well as at Victor Frankenstein. And this contrasts decidedly to the way that human deaths are referred to in the same conversation, with Frankenstein at one stage referring to those victims whom you have diabolically murdered, and the creature's response, you accuse me of murder, and yet you would, with a satisfied conscience, destroy your own creature. So as the creature points out, the human deaths that he is responsible for are referred to unambiguously as murders. These deaths are meaningful, and this contrasts to how his own life could be taken so easily and thoughtlessly. And of course the creature is right. This is actually what Victor Frankenstein proposes when he goes to see a criminal magistrate in his pursuit of his creature and is seeking uh, support um, to apprehend the creature. And he suggests that the creature may be hunted like the chamois and destroyed as a beast of prey. So this direct reference to the hunting of wild antelope relates the creature's first-hand description of his experience of being shot to the experience of wild game hunted throughout Europe. 
and the creature's point is clear. Of course, the murders that he has perpetrated are certainly cruel and unjustifiable, yet all the while he has been targeted by, targeted by people, and Frankenstein himself has formed plans to kill him. And though he has escaped death in these instances, had he been killed, his death would not have been regarded as murder. And in this way, he draws attention to how animal life is valued as worth less than human life, in that the death of an animal is not granted the same importance or given the status of murder. So Donna Haraway has written recently about a, a very similar concern, and uh, she, she draws attention to the difference in value that is accorded to human life compared to animal life. And she notes that what is at issue, in her opinion, are not specific instances of when and why animals are killed for human uses, but with the different status that their lives are accorded in the first place, which allows them to be killed thoughtlessly because so little value is given to their existence. Every living being except man, says Haraway, can be killed, but not murdered. And she calls this the status of being made killable. As Frankenstein's creature so insightfully pointed out 200 years ago, he has been made killable by the simple fact of not being human. And reinforcing this point all the more is a reference to other animals whose deaths are not taken seriously in Victor Frankenstein's quest to hunt and destroy his own monster. So in this pursuit, um, Victor Frankenstein uses sled dogs, as I'm sure we also all remember, uh, to, to track uh, his creature through the snows. And they eventually succumb to the fatigue of this kind of arduous journey and, and harsh conditions. Except for one, one dog actually survives. And this dog's referred to at the beginning of the novel when he's, it's rescued along with Victor Frankenstein by Robert Walton's crew. And the dog is never mentioned in the novel again. Uh, but I think it's striking that that this dog does survive, and that later, when Victor himself comes to describe the end of the journey, he notes only that several of my dogs died and I myself was about to sink, and then he sees Walton's ship approaching to rescue him. So clearly, Victor Frankenstein has no awareness of the dogs as, as individual entities, and he makes no reference to the fact that one survived, nor does he seem aware of how many dogs he even had, only that several of them died. Um, so Victor Frankenstein is clearly a man who uses animals for his own ends, with little regard for their experience. And he is perfectly willing to carelessly sacrifice individual animals in pursuit of his own goals. And it is with the idea of sacrifice that I want to conclude this paper. So Haraway's work on the non-human status of being made killable is actually drawing on the earlier work of Jacques Derrida on the idea of sacrifice. Um, in an interview in 1989, Derrida stresses what he calls the sacrificial structure at work in Western philosophy. And he frames this in terms of responsibility, in the responsibility that it is generally understood that humans owe to other humans, but not to anybody else. And it is this lack of responsibility that enables animals to be sacrificed for human consumption because they have a different status to humans, and therefore their death has a different status as well. And this is something that Frankenstein's creature understands all too painfully. As his experience of being hunted so thoughtlessly allows him to realize, his body and his life matter less, and therefore his death matters less as well. And at the end of the novel, the creature refers to his own death as a sacrifice. So these are his words to Robert Walton. Do not think that I shall be slow to perform this sacrifice. I shall quit your vessel and shall seek the most northern extremity of the globe. I shall collect my funeral pile and consume to ashes this miserable frame, that its remains may afford no light to any curious and unhallowed wretch 
who would create another such as I have been. And I think there's a really interesting difference in the way the creature refers to his own sacrifice in comparison to the general sacrifice of animals that Derrida is referring to. Um, so while the specific circumstances of this sacrifice, the extremely remote location and the complete immolation of his body, have been planned so as to ensure, ensure that no other sim similar being could ever be created, these circumstances also add an element of ceremony and ritual to the creature's death. Um, it is by turning his own death into a sacrifice that the creature actually gives meaning back to his own life. In contrast to Derrida's description of the sacrifice of all animals, which devalues individual animal death in comparison to human death, um, the sacrifice that the creature plans for himself enables a recognition of himself as an individual, demanding that attention be paid to his own singular being. Thank you so much, Libby. That was wonderful and very relevant to today's debates over animal welfare as well. Um, Percy Shelley, obviously famously vegetarian, so lots to discuss there and questions after. Um, our final speaker for this session is Dr. Geoffrey Payne, who also lectures here in our department. Um, he's working on a project at the moment on solitude in the long 18th century, so you'll get a bit of a taste of that in his paper today, which is entitled The Reflections of My Hours of Despondency and Solitude, Narrating Solitude in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Well, I should give you something to look at while I speak. This is the only slide you're getting, so uh, enjoy. Um, thanks very much, everybody who's participated in organising this event, and also especially to the two prior speakers. Um, I really wish I'd heard both of your papers before I worked on this, because they speak really nicely and interestingly into what I'm talking about. And I think I would have been closer to completing what I wanted to say had I been able to, uh, to deal with those ideas a little bit more uh, in a concentrated way beforehand. So this is very much a paper um, which is in progress. Um, it's something that I've um, had to work up fairly rapidly and quickly. So I'm really um, quite interested in, um, in particularly bouncing some ideas around um, that I'm hoping will be able to be uh, refined and generated for um, a publication down the track. But in the opening section of the paper, what I want to do is to dwell for a while upon Frankenstein's rendition of or engagement with the theme of solitude um, in order to flesh out the complexity of its rendering. Um, the reason for dwelling upon this complex arrangement is to try and gain a view of, first of all, the types of solitude that are rendered. Um, in order to set up an analysis of the ideological function of solitude in Shelley's novel, specifically by comparing the ways in which solitude is related to each of the novel's two central protagonists, and also the way in which those representations are embedded in the process of narration, which sets out um, which calls into question, I suppose, the claims that both Frankenstein and his creature are making about solitude. So as I've argued elsewhere, solitude is 
a complex phenomenon in literary discourse that appeared over the course of the long 18th century, where depictions of solitude stem from a wide array of social and literary discourses. Solitude, for instance, <coughs> is endemic to the eremitic tradition of various branches of the Christian churches and lives of virtuous hermits who become saints through a process of removing themselves from the vicissitudes of everyday life prevail in religious writings from medieval times into the modern age. So powerful were these motifs um, that they did not remain cloistered within the confines of religious discourse, but spilled over into the bounds um, from those bounds into more secular and cultural traditions, such as the ornamental hermit in the garden, who persisted into um, the English tradition through into the um, early parts of the 19th century, into Mary Shelley's own time. Adjacent to the aromatic tradition, further types of solitude emerge in literature, linked, for instance, to the notion, notion of rural retreat from public life that was connected to um, discourse arising in the pastoral mode of representation and that dominated both literary and political discussions of the benefits of court and city life during the 17th century and into the 18th century. It also contributes to the castaway tradition of Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. And notions of solitude also feed into newly emergent social models of solitary confinement, for instance which was first formalised by Jonas Hanway in 1776, but was later taken up by other figures, um, notably, for instance, Bentham in his design for the Panopticon. Solitude is also, oh, sorry, is also embedded in primitivist and romantic discourse um, that followed on from Rousseau's writings about the philosophical and educative benefits of certain types of solitude. And these became influ increasingly influential in the latter part of the century and into the early 19th century. Now these educative traditions, of course, become important in the rendering of solitude in Shelley's novel. Solitude became a pervasive concern in many of the literary movements of the late 18th century, from sentimentalism to romanticism, and of course, in the, tradition, the emerging tradition of the Gothic. And those concerns persisted into the early stages of the 19th century also. And, like many texts of its time and type, Frankenstein takes up the theme of solitude in many ways and across many levels. The principal action of the plot, the act of creation that brings life to Frankenstein's creature, comes about in a situation of solitude, a situation that is definitive in the process of Frankenstein's characterization. In the early stage of the novel, Frankenstein becomes cut off from the modes of life that have nourished and nurtured him in the early idyllic existence of his childhood. Um, as he moves um, to the beginning stages of his university career, he tells us, I, who had been surrounded by amiable companions, continually engaged in endeavouring to bestow mutual pleasure, I was now alone and believed myself totally unfitted for the company of strangers. This notion of Frankenstein's isolation and solitude 
comes to dominate his characterization with greater and greater intensity throughout the next stages of the, narr of the narration. Frankenstein talks of his increasing separation from the community of scholars that he, um, that he engages with at the university when he arrives. He begins um, by reaching out in, in, a, in a degree of openness to um, Professor Waldman, for instance, but at, uh, as, the, as the narrative progresses and he outstrips um, the, um, the, the, the professors in the fields in which he is interested in, he moves into a new type of solitude, an intellectual solitude where he has no peers and therefore pursues his own interests unabated. Um, Frankenstein's work, too, becomes more and more isolated and solitary. Um, his experiments, we are told, take place in the solitary chamber, or rather cell at the top of his house, indicating the degree to which this pursuit of his engages him in a degree of solitude, which is in excess of and um, overwhelming of any other mode of being able to conceive his life at the time. He doesn't really narrate very much else about the circumstances of his everyday existence, but rather he focuses upon the work he carries out in this solitary confinement. Solitude is promoted as a precondition of the creative act. At the very moment when the creature is given life, conditions conspire to highlight his solitude. The natural world um, is shrouded in night and inclement weather, which increase the sense of isolation and solitary um, pursuit that he has. Um, but at the same time, um, his solitary condition is thrown into relief um, by the fact of the intrusion, the hauntings of memories of his family and of Elizabeth in particular at the, moment, um, the moments leading up to the act of creation. The moment of creation itself, so what, what, I want to, um, what I want to stress here is that in the process of narrating his life story, of creating a count of his life story, Frankenstein is highlighting a particular type of solitude that is instigative of his ability to create and to be creative which is then perhaps, and I'm going to discuss this later, um, undercut in various ways by the mechanisms of the narrative, um, the, the complex narrative framing that takes place. Now, the moment of creation itself disrupts Frankenstein's articulation of the condition of his solitude and both pra practically and symbolically thrusts him back to his former socialised and encultured condition. This transition, I would suggest, happens instantaneously upon Frankenstein's recognition of the fact that he successfully imparted life to his, to his creation. He has become a creator. And in that moment, he is made aware um, quite violently um, of an internal impulse to recoil, object to, 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 to treat the creature as an abject entity, um, cast off from his life, 
because of the way in which it indicates the relationship between creature and creature. The act of creation, in other words, gives Frankenstein an opportunity to glance with horror at the artificial nature of the discourses of solitude with which he surrounded himself and used to cast his identity. Recoiling from that knowledge, he reverts to the old course of his earlier life, the ideal of his childhood existence, returning first to Claval and then to the remainder of his family and to his home. Now, this, of course, is not the end of Frankenstein's feelings of solitude or his claims for his attempts to capture solitude. Indeed, he strives later on in the novel to try and recreate the conditions of solitude as he needs to go about creating the, the second creature um, it, when, when he travels to England. But the moment marks a significant shift in the narrative's treatment of Frankenstein's rendition of the discourse in solitude. Now, in this moment as well, Frankenstein's narrative interest in solitude bifurcates, with the creature taking for a while the dominant position in the novel's articulation of solitary types. The creature's solitary existence in his early years replicates the types of isolation that Frankenstein suffers. And, like Frankenstein, the creature's life is permeated with a patter of recurrent solitudes. In a key textual moment, as the creature offer Frankenstein his account of the circumstances surrounding the revelation about his creation, the moment when the creature tells Frankenstein about his discovering Frankenstein's papers, and so therefore coming to an awareness of um, the way in which he has come to being and the, the solitary nature um, that surrounds him. Um, the creature reads the progress of his history as creation and recoils in a, in a disgust from the image of his self that is called into being in a manner that parallels um, the, the recoiling horror of Frankenstein. I sickened as I read, hateful day when I received life, I exclaimed in agony, accused, accursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? God, in pity, made man beautiful and alluring after his own image. But my form is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even from the very resemblance. Satan had his companions, fellow devils, to admire and encourage him. But I am solitary and abhorred. Um, it is these lines, of course, that then lead... Um, to the reflection that garners my paper with its title, the reflections, uh, these were the reflections of my hours of despondency and solitude. In his characterization of the conditions of his existence, the creature resolutely reverts to a conception of solitude as being the determining factor of both his actions and his sufferings. Everything that he does in the creature's mind and in the creature's account, as rendered by Frankenstein, proceeds from his conception of his self as a solitary being. But unlike Frankenstein, solitude is cast as the base state of the creature's existence. Now this, I would suggest, complicates the novel's rendering of the creature's, creature's recognition of the nature of the world that he habits, inhabits. And solitude becomes both a necessary condition of his life and is at the same time the thing that makes it intolerable.
Now, I should note here, too, um, that the creature also willfully seeks to disavow the obvious, always present social condition of his existence that is predicated upon his assured knowledge of the relationship he has with his creator. Um, a, a strong part of the creature's narrative arc is dominated by his attempts to disavow that connection. And in order to articulate his solitude, he needs to repress that idea of himself as a social being, a being who has some kind of implicit social connection with another. The complex nature of the creature's attempts to come to terms with solitude, to return to my point, is brought forward in an episode from Volume 2, Chapter 9, as the creature solicits Frankenstein about the possibility of adding a second creature to the world, a partner who would share his condition of exile from the world of humankind. In making his plea, solitude is again framed as a necessary condition of the creature's continued existence, even as he seeks to rectify the feelings of solitude. What the creature is attempting to do is to swap solitary types, moving from a position where he is constructed by necessity as a solitary individual to a, to a creature who chooses solitude to become, in a sense, more like Frankenstein himself. And this question of choice is going to come, hopefully, into my discussion of the ideological framing uh, that takes place. On the one hand, the creature abhors the necessity of solitude, as it is all the cause of all that is bad in his life and his person. My vices, he says, are the children of a forced solitude that I abhor. But at the same time, the creature seeks to accept, for both himself and his mate, a condition of exile that replicates the early stages of his own life story. Now, Frankenstein, as we know, does call the creature out on these contradictions. Um, he calls into question the, the idea of whether the creature is ultimately going to become, uh, to be satisfied to, um, to, to keep um, continuing to the terms of the agreement, to persist in exile as he has suggested that he will. But they do continue to act, whether, whether they are truthful or not, they continue to act as an indicator of the novel's interest in setting different modes of um, it, uh, of solitude, different ideologies of solitude um, in competition with one another. And bringing in that word again, I want briefly to talk about um, this question of how we can read this situation ideologically. How long have I got, Kirsten? A few minutes? All right, so we're running out of time? Okay, I'll, I'll do this really briefly. So what I, the, the, the model of ideology that I am working with is essentially drawing on the Althusserian tradition, um, talking about the way in which, uh, in particular, the, the cultural ISA, as Althusser um, describes it, um, provides us with a way of understanding the modes by which um, cultural artefacts, such as novels or narratives or narrative strategies, 
call into being particular conditions um, in, in any frame in which they're presented. Um, so what we're talking about is the way in which discursively narrative structures and strategies interpolate individuals in particular ways, but also in the way in which they disseminate um, ideology in what um, Althusser um, signifies as the, 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 the way that ideology functions is twofold in Althusser's model. It is both material, but it is also imaginative. Um, it, ha it retains that idea of the Marxist tradition of the imaginative um, connection of the individual to the state of existence, the way in which the individual imagines the relationships that they have to the state of their existence. Now, solitude in its different types indicates different imaginative modes. Um, on the one hand, solitude can be something like a positive force. Um, the idea of the solitary artist in the classical romantic conception of the artist's operation, who is able to take their, to withdraw to a, a position of solitude in order to um, draw in the natural world and then bring it back productively and creatively, is at one end of a spectrum, which is in opposition to the other end of the spectrum, where um, we have the idea of solitary confinement of the prisoner, for instance, um, which is uh, the, the two conditions have different modes of agency, um, different levels of um, uh, both operate in order to bolster um, the production of a particular kind of society, but interpolate their subjects in different ways. It's tempting, I would suggest, to read Frankenstein and the Creature as occupying positions at two ends of the spectrum. Um, Frankenstein, on the one hand, chooses his conditions of solitude. This is arguable. <laughs> um, but he chooses to um, engage in this solitary lifestyle in order to um, act in particular ways and seems able to move in and out of the processes um, that, of, of solitude that surrounds him. Whereas the creature, on the other hand, seems to be constructed in a position that is entirely predetermined by the conditions of his existence. What I would suggest and what I want to draw out more when I have space to discuss it more is that the operations of the narrative itself um, serve as a mechanism to destabilise the operation of um, the, the, the truth value claims made by both Frankenstein and the creature and serve in certain ways to collapse the differences between their conditions. And indeed, the point of the narrative itself seems to be to highlight the impossibility or the entire artificiality of this imaginative process of rendering the individual as solitary. Um, I suspect I'm out of time. Yep, so I will stop there, but maybe we can discuss more in the end. Thank you very much, Jeff, for that wonderful talk. Um, three excellent talks to start us off with the first session. Um, we have about 15 minutes for questions, so I will open to the floor if anyone has any questions for either of our three speakers. Yes. Uh, a question for Lee. Uh, you 
someone has been able to ascertain the additional language added by person shell. Has anyone removed that and resulted in perhaps a more modern story and, and, and actually published it as Mary Shelley's work without the ornamentation? Yes, that's that's what Charles Robinson has has done in that edition I was talking about. Um, he makes available um, the the edition that actually has Shelley's editions in italic, Percy Shelley's, and then he adds at the end in a different coloured paper. Even he goes right back to the manuscripts that he's taken out everything that Percy Shelley added. And he was able to do, it's really like a detective story, reading it, he, he was able to compare the different handwritings because most of the manuscript survives, except, as I said, those opening sequences. So it was, it was like, um, I, I don't know what you'd call it, forensic bibliography. <laughs> they were actually... Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. The story is, because his editions were kind of piecemeal, he was operating at the sentence level, even at the level of punctuation. So the story is the same, and all the incidents are the same. The tone is a little different, because his writing is so much more ornate. <laughs> and and Mary Shelley often is, is is much more direct in what she says, and it's just so it's it's more a matter of registers than 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 changing the content radically. You think if somebody just instead of this, you describe somewhat of a scholarly edition. Yeah. But if someone that just took and printed as a book, yeah. Mary Shelley's words. Yeah. Possibly, yes, I think so. Um, I, I don't want to make I don't want to make too many grand claims, but yes, because her language is just it's sort of clearer somehow, more direct. But a lot of it is the same. But uh, yes, it's a, it's an interesting you're sort of sitting down with them side by side. He adds a kind of um, fevered imaginative complexity at the sentence level that she doesn't always have. But to make that case, I'd have to go through the, or you know, make it care more carefully than I'm making it. It's, that was just my impression. That of a, it just it's a, seems a younger voice too, as you would imagine, because she was a very young girl. And, uh, so yes, and it's lovely to be able to. Robinson's the only one to do that. And he's made available editions of the notebooks as well. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you. So it's a very unstable text. There are so because Mary Shelley um, revised it herself as well. Sorry, I'm leaving everybody out. Mary Shelley came back and revised it for the 1831 and for the 1823 edition. Most texts are unstable, I suppose, as they move from manuscript to printed form, but. Frankenstein more than most. Paul. Um, a question for Libby. Fascinating paper. Um, the word sacrifice seems to be a very human word, mm. as in human related. Um, 
a lab technician told me years ago that they refer to the animals in the labs that are experimented on as sacrifices. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this to Nancy Armstrong, who was out here a few years ago, and she thought she was adamant that that couldn't be the case. That it was just completely inappropriate um, because you know they have no awareness. They're just they're kind of treated like objects as ends rather than than uh, or as, as means rather than ends. In which case, f the creature's final act is obviously a sacrifice. He's aware of what he's doing and so forth. But how would that sit with the other animals like the, the sled dogs and, and so forth who, you know, they don't know what they're sacrificing or they don't know what it's in, in aid of. And if they did, you know, they'd probably be reluctant. Mm. Uh, yes. So I, I might just talk, if that's okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I mean, I think sacrifice is a really interesting word and it has a, a lot of different registers. Um, and I think historically sacrifice is really interesting to think about in terms of agency because I think there's, there is a, a really big difference between a choice to sacrifice yourself and um, to be caught up as a sacrifice for something that, that you don't have a lot of choice in. And I think the, the creature's use of the word sacrifice is, is really fascinating, especially since we don't actually see the creature die. We just hear his plan to die. Um, yeah, which, which I think is interesting. I'm just, um, there's so many different things going on in my head, and I think that the way the creature uses the word sacrifice has a different register from, from the the way that, um, that Derrida is talking about sacrifice, which is, is quite a, a specific sort of use of the term. And it's something that I, yeah, I really want to think about a lot, a lot more deeply, the idea that the, the creature is able to sacrifice itself, whereas a lot of other animals, the animals that, that, that were used to make the creature are, are not able, you know, they're, they're not a choice to be caught up in science. Um, and the same with the, the bird in the air pump. Which they didn't actually always die. Those birds, they they often like revivified them in a very like exciting way when they gave them the, the air back. But you know sometimes it failed. Um, I just wanted to say one other thing, just in terms of the science, the idea of whether or not where the the use of the word sacrifice of animals is, because I think like Haraway's work on science is is really influencing and influential and interesting in in my work and the way that she builds on, on Derrida's idea is really interesting um, because the idea that animals might be killed in, in scientific development, she's not saying that that's necessarily a problem in itself, it's with the way that we, that we kill thoughtlessly or we don't think about the meaning of those deaths. Um, and oh, no, I'm not quite sure sacrifice implicitly, it, it doesn't necessarily imply agency on the part of the sacrifice object. In ritual sacrifice, yes, yeah. um, there's a long history of co-opting uh, animal substitutes, mm -hmm. um, so the sacrificial lamb or the scapegoating, for instance, is necessarily, you know, the, the deferring of responsibility on, from human onto but animal, given the animal. But there's also the sense that you don't have access, you don't get to enjoy this animal for whatever reason. You know, the sacrifice is, is you're denying that as a... The flesh is not eaten, but it's, yeah. it's offered up. And I think the, the idea of the, of the creature deciding to sacrifice itself is a really interesting 
take on that lack of agency that um, is historically part of it. Thank you. huge kind of area, but pain, like um, the primitive example that I, that I chose, he really focuses on pain and suffering, and that's where a lot of, um, a lot of what you find people, people aren't saying you shouldn't be killing and eating animals, I mean the Shelleys were, but that wasn't, that wasn't a big part of discourse around animal welfare, like so, so Primit is really saying, he talks about the fact that he has this really interesting kind of justification of why we kill and eat animals, but he's really talking about unjustified uh, cruelty beyond um, beyond what's fair. And you see that in terms of how we sort of ethical standards that we talk about now in terms of factory farming. It's about minimising its pain rather than, than the concept of, of taking life away. And I think, yeah, the idea of pain as framing um, an understanding of an animal's place in the world, or in this case, the creature's place in the world, is really interesting and I think plays in the way the creature kind of reflects on and the way you could try and draw out and pull out at which point the creature loses uh, his kind of social care for, for other beings, the moment when he um, turns murderous. And I think you could that I think that incident where he is shot um, is, is a big part in that kind of pathway. And I do think that it's really interesting the way she kind of jumps between the actual experience of pain and this sense that how dare I, like I had just rescued this person and they shot me, like I find that a really interesting movement. Um, so yeah, nothing definitive, but I think the idea of pain is, is yeah. Okay, Louise. Yeah, um, hi, sorry, mine's for Libby too. <laughs> uh, thanks to your paper, Libby. Uh, my question is, um, so I suppose it's a little bit of a historical one. I was thinking while you were um, talking, the, the example that you gave from the novel that obviously people really kind of um, being seized by is, uh, wasn't one of vivisection, but was one of hunting. Um, and so I was sort of wanting to, I, I, when you put up the pictures of the, of the um, Suffragettes, of course, one of the most famous moments in that in suffragette history is the protest at the horse races and yeah. that idea of animals being, you know, treated as sport as well as, you know, um, yeah. being anti-vivisectionist you know, anti as well. And I guess I was trying to think about a long history and wondering whether I know you're focusing on the, uh, you know, on this particular moment, how you see it within a kind of a longer history. I've just been thinking. Last week I was teaching. Um, Margaret Cavendish's um, *The Hunting of the Hare*, mm. and you know she's somebody who kind of famously brings together um, anti-vivisectionist uh, sentiment with um, critiques of hunting, 
with critique of patriarchy, and I'm just sort of wondering um, how, how you sort of see that travelling. Do you think the moment that Mary Shelley's writing is specific, or? Mm. Oh, look, that, yeah, again, this is so huge for me, and I, um, I, I was practising this a while back for, for my mum, and she, she was like, immediately was like, what are all these other women's texts? Why aren't you mentioning them? And I was like, oh, because I, I just want to talk about Frankenstein, and, um, and, and then there's a very larger project. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, it, oh, where was I going with that? Um, I think, yeah, there's, there's, once you start looking for it, there is so much of it, and there's so much of it earlier. Like, the early 19th century is my kind of pet time, but there, there's so much of it, and it's, and it's happening in all these really interesting places. Um, there's, yeah, like poetry and so you know, Anna Letitia Barbeau and the Mouse's partition, uh, partition is, is earlier and then I just, yeah, recently got a book of, like a book of Susanna Watts's um, Insects Council and there's, there's really interesting threads of it all through, um, all through writing across genders but I'm, I think there's some really interesting ways of linking um, the positioning of animals with other kinds of social hierarchies um, that's, that's actually really like tough in in women. Like it's really like strongly related with. Um, and so my my masters, which I just finished, this is on Anne Bronte. So she's a, she's quite a bit later. But I was just really struck by how it's not just they're not just using animals as metaphors for um, for other experiences of oppression. They're really linking in. Um, the way oppression works at all these different levels. Um, and so I'm actually, I really don't know how far back I'm going to go and I, I really don't know how to, how to bring in all the things that I'm finding so interesting um, without it being a really disparate kind of thesis. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it's, it's fascinating and it's, it, yeah, it goes back. It's also, sorry, this is one last thing. I think it's really interesting that this is happening but so much of animal welfare, when it does become quite official, is really about laws, is really about asking for laws to be changed and policed. Um, and I'm really interested in the fact that this is such a, a strong concern in women's writing when women are, are at this stage outside of the law, like not, not regarded as, as subjects or citizens in the same way that, that men are. So I think it's a really interesting link there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we've run out of time for questions, so any further questions, perhaps we could chat about those in the break. Can I ask you all to give one more round of applause to our lovely speakers for the first session?